My freshman year of college, a girl in my dorm room used the word chick in conversation. She used it as an adjective to describe a, a piece of clothing or an ensemble or something that she thought was uh, fashionable or appealing. And it took me a, a moment to realize that she meant uh, chic. Uh, and and so I, I turned to her and I and I said this word chic to her with a sort of an evil twinkle in my eye and she immediately blushed and realized her mistake. Now I, I mention this um, because uh, I was a fucking asshole, <laughs> such a shitty thing to do. But um, but I think it's only sort of recently I think I've come to understand. Uh, that it was wrong of me for three reasons. You know, first and most obviously, you shouldn't correct people's pronunciation. You shouldn't, you know, make a point of being a dick to people when you see they got something wrong. So that's obvious. The, the second, I think, you know, uh, so Rachel, um, and by the way, Rachel, if you happen ever to hear this, I'm sorry. Uh, I was a jerk. And I uh, will I knew it moments after having done it. But at any rate, Rachel and I, along with another classmate, went to Paris later that year uh, for a, a sort of a study abroad thing. And if I had said to you just now, Rachel and I went to Paris, uh, or even worse, had attempted a French R, um, you would rightly say what a stuck up pretentious motherfucker because it, you know when we're speaking english we pronounce french words uh, the english way and you know when they're speaking french they pronounce uh, english words the french way and that's fine and it doesn't matter and you might as well say chick because that's how english pronunciation would have you say it so uh you know i was i was twice wrong but i think you know more interestingly to me <laughs> i was wrong for a third reason uh, which is that um, when people mispronounce words, we take it, uh, you know, it's, it's embarrassing. We take it immediately as a sign of cluelessness or ignorance uh, or, or even foolishness. Um, and it is ignorance of a very particular kind. But really, what does it mean when someone uses a word in conversation and mispronounces it. Well, what it actually means is that that person knows the word, but doesn't know how to say it. And so knows the word only from having read it, which really just tells you that that person reads much more widely than any of her peers. Because in conversation, nobody else knows how the fuck to say that because nobody says it. So she's only ever encountered it on the page, which actually means that she's actually pretty smart. So mispronunciation, and I really, I can't stress this enough, mispronunciation is a sign of intelligence. It is, I actually think it is the opposite. The opposite of mispronunciation is misuse. That is, if you use a word that you have heard and thus pronounce it correctly, but you use it wrong, wrongly in the wrong spot, then that is, if anything, a sign of ignorance. Um, and yet, 
we have this sort of, you know, the trend ends up going almost the other way around where, uh, you know, if somebody says parabola instead of parabola or annihilation instead of annihilation or desultory instead of desultory, which I said until maybe fucking two years ago, we take that as a sign of ignorance. But if someone says reticent, where he should say hesitant, or bemuse, where he should say amuse, or nonplussed, where he should say nonchalant, though that battle was probably lost quite a while ago, uh, we take this as a kind of a, a, a mark of sophistication. Well, reticent, that sounds like a, a sort of a, a more chic way of saying hesitant. Um, when, of course, it's actually just a different word altogether. So... Uh, in conclusion, I know this has gone on for a little bit, but I just, I want to, um, I want to land on this point. And if there's a motto for this podcast, if Slee Ricketts has a motto, and if we ever make t-shirts, I, I pledge that this will go on one of them. The motto is this, pronunciation doesn't matter. I stand by that. And on that note, let's start the fucking show. Recently, my daughter, my, my older daughter, has been uh, really into Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, we mentioned this to the, the um, uh, young woman who's been coming a couple days a week to watch our, our younger daughter, and she raised an eyebrow. She was a little surprised that, uh, that Josie, was, who's seven, was into Grimm's fairy tales. She, Josie was specific in naming that. She didn't say, I'm reading fairy tales. She said, I'm re reading Grimm's fairy tales. And uh, the woman, you know, said, oh, I, oh, you know, I've never really read those, but I've heard about them. And of course, I'd heard about them, too. And, and before spending a lot of time with them um, in, in my daughter's company, uh, I had a, a particular idea about them. You know, I was I was really raised on uh, Disney fairy tales and uh, from a fairly young age was was informed by uh, you know, rye knowing grown-ups, often those without kids or those with older kids, that you know the Disney fairy tales that those weren't the real fairy tales. Uh, if you want the you know the, the, the originals were a lot darker, a lot grislier, you know sometimes more like horror stories than fairy tales. Uh, so I'd heard this for for um, years and years and uh, so I was a little surprised when I read them with Josie, N not because we got some bodlerized, uh, you know, blood-free version. There were there were certainly a few stories that were pretty gruesome. Uh, the robber bridegroom sees a young woman, uh, you know, hide behind a cask at at her fiance's house, uh, um, and secretly watch him. Uh, drug, poison, butcher, and eat another young woman <laughs> uh, before she is supposed to meet him uh, herself. Uh, that's a story that ends with a the 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 happy revelation at the end of that story is the tossing of a severed finger onto a dinner table. 
Uh, and that, that one does have a happy ending. There, there are others that don't really have happy endings or, um, you know, Sweetheart Roland, the, the heroine who's a little girl, has to um, trick the witch that she lives with into beheading her own daughter in her sleep. Uh, and that's just the beginning of the story. A lot of these stories end with um, the villain, that one does, either being trapped in sort of magic shoes or some kind of magic curse that, that forced them to dance until they, they drop dead, like uh, the uh, girl in the Hans Christian Andersen story. Or um, sometimes the shoes are made of iron and they're burning hot. And so uh, the, um, the villain is sort of grilled alive. A lot, there's a lot of public executions. There's a lot of, sort of miserable death or exile. Um, so there's plenty of uh, blood and gore and violence, you know, and just the the good old the ordinary versions of Red Riding Hood and Hansel and Gretel are. There's no nice way to tell those stories. Uh, but but what what surprised me was that the the violence, the really grisly stories, were were relatively few and far between. There were plenty more that were just sort of goofy. Uh, you know, relatively tame in, uh, you know, MPAA-relevant content. Stories in which there were anthropomorphic coals and there's a coal, the coal, the straw, and the bean, I think is one story. And it's just a sort of a dumb nonsense story. Uh, and the most violence that happens there is the bean, you know, splits open. So, there were a lot of them that were not really dark or grisly at all. Uh, and so the, the reputation of the book as a whole is being, is being a, a, you know, an especially um, uh, shadowy, horrific one felt inappropriate. But, uh, but I think I, I did, I also discovered what maybe made the Grimm's fairy tales disturbing and um and and at least in another generation's eyes not suitable for children and and it's not that they are violent they, you know that there's some of it's there's some violence it would be easy enough to skip the really bad violence in this book and still read the overwhelming majority of the book to your kid what it would not be possible to do is to get around uh, the absolute amorality of most of the stories. There, there are a handful of stories in which a you know a younger brother is merely not rude to a magical dwarf in a forest, unlike his his shithead older brothers, and as a result of that, you know, is granted the the water of life or something along these lines. But in most of these stories. Uh, misfortune, you know, the, the man who, uh, a little bit like Rip Van Winkle, um, uh, uh, you know, plays nine pins with some curious knights in the mountains and then wakes up and I think 20 years have passed. Uh, there's the, um, uh, Catherine and, um, Frederick and Catherine, I think is the story. And Catherine is the, um, utterly foolhardy wife who, through sheer idiocy and a sort of a slapstick series of accidents, uh, um, destroys her life with her husband and, and gives up all of their savings and then reclaims all of it again 
through just exactly the same idiocy that lost it in the first place. There's a story in which a, a very small boy learns how to get grow up and be big, and then he uh, becomes a big brute who beats everybody up, and through sheer violence and threat of violence, um, even though it's fairly cartoonish, violence, you know, he doesn't he doesn't kill anyone. He just sort of batters his you know bosses and his enemies over the head until uh, he gets everything he wants and he wins. There are stories that involve uh, you know coercion. There are stories that involve there are a lot of stories that just involve dumb luck. And you know the thing that is maybe really disturbing for children or for some idea of how children should be raised is that these are not morality tales. They're not didactic. Or if they are didactic, then the lessons they teach are uh, be lucky. Um, don't be, don't let yourself be preyed upon by the predators who look exactly like your friends sometimes and other times look like uh, uh, monsters and uh when in doubt trick and take advantage of people in order to get ahead and uh and these are are bad lessons indeed if you're growing up uh with some idea that that you know your children should be raised with a you know a, a christian sense of uh, selfless right and wrong uh but they also strike me as as pretty damn accurate and pretty true to life as one experiences it as an adult. Uh, and maybe that's really the thing. It's, it's, it's not so much that, um, that we are afraid of, uh, exposing our kids to this. It's more that we, um, part of the comfort of reading children's stories to children, I think, for a lot of people is getting to pretend for a little while that uh, the world is a fair place and that if you just do the right thing in the end uh, things are going to turn out well for you you will uh, save the princess you will escape the witch you will win the battle and as uh, one story memorably ends We'll all live happily until you die. Let's start the fucking show. So one of the uh, more odd cultural developments uh, of the, the last, you know, I guess 10 years or so has been uh, what's now commonly referred to as ASMR. This is uh, uh, Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response is, is what it essentially stands for. That's, as far as I, I understand, a, a bunch of gobbledygook. Um, it's just a sort of a placeholder initialism. Uh, ASMR is a genre of YouTube video, largely, in which uh, practitioners or as they call themselves ASM artists, and I'll come back to that term because I, I question it a little bit. Uh, they you know, mostly whisper, tap, 
slide their fingernails on on objects and uh, you know sort of perform soothing gestures toward the camera in an effort to elicit a, a, a peculiar tingly sensation in the scalp that uh, some of us experienced growing up. I, I you know I remember feeling this. Uh, at, at library readings, uh, listening to the, the crinkle of the mylar rapping uh, on the library books, and the, the soft tones of the librarian's voice as she read some children's story. So, you know, that that experience is, is I think, real. Uh, the, the micro-industry of ASMR on YouTube is... Um, often mocked, and I think um, uh, rightly mocked, easily mocked. Uh, It's also frequently compared to pornography, or as my brother-in-law put it, it it is pornography. (laughs) Uh, And and he points to the the, um, prominence of uh, uh, beautiful young women among the the most successful or most um, popular uh, practitioners of ASMR. Uh, I, I think there's certainly truth to that. I think that there is a there's some element of that, and, and it does seem like you know, some of the people who who do this also uh, maybe dabble in various uh, degrees of pornography that now exist um, or shadings. Uh, but but I think there's also another thing. Um, I, I I do enjoy these things sometimes, and my own favorite channel is one in which a middle-aged Danish man whispers about chess without ever appearing on screen, Uh, which, though it might be um, exciting sexually to some people, it's not, it's not, that's not quite my taste. I do, uh, I do find it comforting though. I do find it soothing. So I think there's a, there is a sensation you know, scientifically verifiable or otherwise that ASMR is setting out to uh, induce. Uh, It got me thinking, though, this ASMR artist thing and this comparison to pornography, that, you know, neither of those feels quite right. ASMR isn't really porn, but it's also not really art. And and that sent me back to the old question about what pornography is. You know, Justice uh, Potter Stewart famously, in, in deciding that Louis Maul's movie The Lovers was not hardcore pornography, he, he said of uh, pornography famously, uh, I know it when I see it. And that's a, that's a working definition a lot of people use. Uh, looking this up in the, um, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, uh, the, the, the definition they offer is that uh, pornography is any sexually explicit material. And that seems like a completely fucking useless definition. Well, I mean, that, and they, they as much as admit that by saying that, you know, in the Victorian era, you know, images of a woman's bare calves might count as pornography. So this is basically meaningless. Uh, it also it isn't quite accurate today in that there are there are certainly images, movies, you know, pieces of art that might feature the same degree of explicitness, but um, in one case count as art, in another as pornography. Uh, the super disturbing and really uh, morally troubling movie Antichrist 
by Lars von Trier comes to mind, which which actually even features uh, you know images of you know, full sexual penetration. But uh, boy, anyone who thinks that that's pornography has uh, um, has more problems than just <laughs> a question of an, an overactive libido. So uh, th there does seem to be a kind of a a a need for, or at least a lack of. A kind of a clear definition, and and so I started thinking about uh, Aristotle, as as one does, and in, in the Nicomachean Ethics, he, he presents this idea that, uh, and like a lot of his ideas, it's sort of presented almost sideways on the way to a different point. That that all human activity can be divided into three categories, and, and these three categories are uh, praxis poesis and theoria and these you know i'm neither a philosopher nor a classicist so forgive me for you know my uh, clumsy handling of the matter but these um terms these greek terms praxis poesis and theoria are, are commonly translated as doing making and contemplating something like this, theoria, contemplating, thinking, uh, thinking for the sake of thinking, maybe. So he, he says that, that these are sort of three, these are sort of the three primary colors of human action. That there, there are certainly actions that include more than one of these, but these are kind of the three basic dimensions of human action. There's doing, there's making, and there's thinking or contemplating, meditating, maybe though not in the, the Buddhist sense. Uh, so applying this model to the ASMR porn art question, uh, if poesis, if art, if making, if the purpose there is, is, the, is the actual, the product, the object, right? You, you don't make a sculpture in order to prop up a table, right? Um, you, you make it in order to be a sculpture. You don't, you don't sing a song in order to uh, inform your troops that the enemy is approaching. You, you, you sing a song in order to sing a song. So the making is distinct from doing and, and because doing is measured by its result, um, by its effect upon the world. So, um, you know, what, what seemed clear to me for a moment, at least, was that, uh, you know, art is poesis, is making, the purpose of art is art, whereas uh, but ASMR and uh, pornography, well, you know, I think Oscar Wilde um, said, I don't know if he was the, the first, but he at least famously said, art is perfectly useless. So in that sense, you know, ASMR that does not elicit any sort of comforting tingly sensation or even something in that ballpark that doesn't come close to that is not really ASMR. Right? There may be some really beautiful ASMR videos. There may be ASMR videos that teach you something about chess. But if it doesn't elicit that feeling, then it's not really fair to call it ASMR. If it doesn't work toward that feeling or elicit that feeling for somebody or even theoretically elicit that feeling, if it's nowhere in the business of eliciting that feeling, well, then it's just not ASMR. And similarly, if pornography does not arouse anyone, this is clearly, you know, um, there's no accounting for taste. But if it's not in the business of arousing any theoretical viewer or, or audience, 
then, then it's not really pornography. So um, in that sense, ASMR and porn are not art because they're too useful. Right? <laughs> you can identify their use and their effectiveness and, uh, and in that sense, distinguish them from art because as uh, Wilde tells us, our art is useless. Now, um, as I said, this felt satisfying for a moment. And then I thought back to, uh, if you heard my little spiel on Archibald MacLeish's Ars Poetica, this poem about the art of poetry in which he says a poem should not mean but be, and I railed against this conclusion uh, because it, it at least leads to the writing of a lot of uh poems that gaze into their own navels without concerning themselves with the experience of any reader. Uh, I, I have, you know, in, in this podcast and elsewhere, uh, expended a fair amount of energy on um, promoting the idea that poetry should have an effect on people. It should produce some effect. Um, you know, and, and similarly, uh, comedy, good comedy, you know, good stand-up comedy, say, as, as David Yezzy has, has already uh, um, identified, is like poetry in that it it produces an effect, or good poetry, at least, it produces a, a somewhat reliable effect on the audience. And, you know, while uh, ASMR and porn don't feel intuitively like art, Really good stand-up comedy, I think, does. Really, you know, the, the best of it. Uh, and and this sent me back to another distinction, uh, which is one when I was in um, college, uh, I remember learning about the, the, we of course have the five senses, but then in the um, medieval ages, they had, the medieval age is a little redundant, um, in the middle ages, there was uh, a notion of the five wits. This comes up in Shakespeare. It comes up in um, uh, Everyman, uh, some uh, other literature of that time. Uh, I don't remember what all the five wits were. Let me see. It's um, uh, common sense, fantasy, imagination, uh, memory, and oh, fuck if I know something else. But a, a lot of them end up feeling a little bit redundant to us today. Um, but the distinction I remember um, hearing from a professor between fantasy and imagination, and, and I don't know how medieval this really is. Maybe Marianne Corbett can clarify this for me, uh, as well as reminding me what the fifth fucking wit was. Um, but the distinction that I thought, you know, had some value to it, whether, you know, whether, even if it wasn't scholarly value, was that um, imagination was a... Uh, a projection of a world that was like our own in in enough of the fundamental qualities and and specifically in being unlike a fantasy uh, the, the key to a fantasy is that the fantasizer is at the center of it that all elements of reality are warped and bent around the desires of the person fantasizing. Um, I had uh, a Mark Strand, um, not long before he died, I had the pleasure of taking a class with him uh, at Sewanee, and he 
um, he made a, a, a curious distinction. He said, you know, they're, they're the difference between a surrealist and a fantasist, because he, he's been called a surrealist at times. The difference between a surrealist and a fantasist is that a, uh, a surrealist presents um, bizarre dreamlike images deliberately, knowing that they are bizarre and dreamlike in order to uh, um, produce some uh, sensation in the reader or to uh, you know, argue some uh, some point or make some comparison. The, the, the surrealist deliberately presents these unreal chimeras. The fantasist presents what he believes is uh, ordinary reality, but uh, to the rest of the world, the product... <laughs> of the fantasist is, is nearly indistinguishable from that of the surrealist. And then he said, and he said this as he did with almost everything, um, he said, uh, a, a little bit of a, a Mona Lisa smile, he said, I'm not a surrealist, I'm a fantasist. Which is crazy, of course, because <laughs> according to his definition, a fantasist should, should identify himself as a realist, right? He thinks that the the, uh, you know, the zebra walking on the ceiling is perfectly ordinary. Uh, but Mark Strand was um, uh, really one of a kind. Bringing, coming back to this question of fantasy versus imagination. In fantasy, the, the eye of the person fantasizing, you know, the fantasizer is at the center. All things bend to the fantasizer's will and the fantasizer's desire. Fantasy really is a dream in the Freudian sense, and that it is all wish fulfillment. Um, whereas the imagination, the true imagination in this, you know, um, notional sense, uh, is is really much more selfless, and has much more to do with an attempt at understanding whether what one is imagining is a is a is a real world or not. The unreality of it, if there, if it's there, is not an unreality of self-centeredness. It's not a geocentric, but a heliocentric world. Now, part of me wants to say that according to this, you know, uh, praxis poesis theoria distinction, uh, my own, the art that I, you know, value and would, uh, would, would hope for more of isn't purely poiesis and that I do want it to produce some effect on the audience, on the reader. So maybe I'm not an Aristotelian in that sense. Uh, and so maybe porn and ASMR are really just sort of narrow art. They're just sort of art that's not that great or art that sort of only does one thing. D.H. Lawrence said that um, it should be an acceptable goal for art to uh, merely to arouse the reader. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what I think of that, but you know, it's, it's possible that, that you know maybe ASMR and, and porn really are art. They're just sort of art in very uh, peculiar uh, corners of the, um, of the, 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 the readerly imagination or the, the artistic imagination. Uh, but I also think it's possible that, that really the distinction between art and ASMR or art and porn is the distinction between imagination and fantasy. And, and that's where I think really good comedy uh, bears out that um, difference. Because really good comedy uh, 
uh, is humbling and it's eye-opening and it uh, you know Freud said that the, the laughter is um, the shock of recognition it's an, an, an involuntary uh, expression of recognition of a buried truth and um, so maybe that's maybe that's the, the distinction now uh, all of this um, meditation on categories and uh, the the limits of art uh, do bring us to a, a particular question uh, in this context which is well if ASMR is not art and porn is not art what are podcasts? And uh, I think they're not really art. Or if they are, they're art only in the sense that porn and ASMR are. And if, if ASMR is uh, designed to elicit a, a, a comforting tingle in the scalp, and if porn is designed to elicit uh, arousal in the genitals, then uh, I think podcasts are... They might be educational at times. They might be uh, funny, might be entertaining in, in some ways. Um, but I, I think they're really a kind of a social prosthetic. I think they are comforting the way that it is comforting to hear your friends talk in uh, in a living room when you're you know maybe half listening, half participating, but it's just nice to know that they're there. And uh, maybe that's part of why podcasting has become even more popular over the course of this fucking pandemic because your friends of course are not there you were in the living room alone and but for the voice in your ears uh, that solitude might be a little less tolerable so with that let's start the fucking show gave a lecture uh, today on ghost stories and in talking to her about it ahead of time uh, an interesting question came up she had found this list that I think had been made by M.R. James uh, of all of the elements that a ghost story should include and one of them was uh, I believe the phrase was a pleasing sense of terror and as soon as she listed that it made me wonder about this um, this particular distinction between terror and horror but because you know most obviously and immediately while a pleasing sense of terror makes a kind of an intuitive sense we can all understand that we've been on roller coasters or been to a certain kind of movie but a pleasing sense of horror is uh, really just a contradiction in terms. It's not really possible, I don't think, to have a pleasing sense of horror, properly speaking. Uh, and so it made me wonder about, you know, what is really the difference and why should one be more uh, appropriate to ghost stories than others, than the other? Um, and this sent me, as, as you know, is often the case when I, I wonder about words, to uh, the dictionary. So I, I wanted to look at the etymology of, uh, of both of these words, and of course they're both from Latin. Um, and it, you know, er, 
early on, they, they seem both to be words for uh, a kind of a shaking and fear. Um, but if you, if you go a little further, uh, there's a slight divergence. Uh, terror um, ultimately uh, comes from, uh, you know, tress or tray for um, to tremble, to shake. Um, and horror uh, comes from, uh, you know, a, a, a root that's more like gerse or hearse and is related to like the word hirsute. Um, so this is a bristling. Uh, and that can be, you know, that sort of is used to mean shake in some, uh, you know, later on. But, but at the root, no pun intended, uh, horror seems to be a sort of a, a, a bristling response. So that terror is what you feel when you tremble at something, when you shake in the presence of something. Horror is what you feel when your hair stands up on end. And this made intuitive sense to me because I think, you know, while terror is a, uh, a more energizing emotion, it's one that activates one, it excites one, it gets one moving. Uh, horror is a, you know, I think in part always a kind of a sinking feeling. And, um, you know, it occurred to me that the, the, these are both Latinate words. Um, if they have, uh, Anglo-Saxon equivalents, then I think they would have to be, you know, the, the terror is to fear as horror is to dread. And there, the distinction is, is, is if anything, even sharper, um, because uh, if you go, if you go deep into the etymology of fear, you get to things like uh, uh, fera for danger, um, pair for risk, um, uh, uh, gefer for uh, uh, peril, attack. Whereas with dread, there's a, a little bit of a simpler path. Um, dread appears to come from uh, Raiden. Um, Raiden being an old, old English word uh, that means advise or prepare, make ready. And so undreden or dread rather than just red would seem to be a dread, which is the older form of the word. Dread would actually seem to mean made ready, advised, informed, which is to say uh, when you are afraid, when you feel fear, then you feel a revulsion or repugnance or a, uh, a, a dark sensation towards something that might happen. Whereas when you feel dread, you feel the same thing towards something that you know, having been advised, having been prepared, something that you know will happen. And, and there I think terror and horror line up quite nicely. That, that terror is in some sense, uh, a response to uncertainty, whereas horror, I think, is a response to recognition. And, and that's, I think, really why a ghost story um, traffics in terror, but not horror, because in some way, 
on some level, every ghost story is hopeful. You know, a, a ghost, the, the proper response, the, 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 the proper feeling to elicit if you are writing a ghost story is a you know, pleasing sense of terror, a, a feeling that uh, though one might be afraid of, of what, what, you know, what one encounters, there is this possibility, this tantalizing possibility that, uh, that things are more than they seem. That something that we don't yet know about might be out there. Whereas horror stories, you know, though they may be populated with monsters and supernatural, you know, presences, ultimately the horror is the emotion that one feels in recognizing that the world is is only exactly what we always feared it was. It is no more. There is really that's it. I think terror is uh, is a deeply unpleasant feeling that is inextricable from hope, and horror is that same feeling with the hope stripped away. Uh, and having uh, cheered you up quite effectively, I think uh, let's go ahead and start the fucking show. So uh, last spring, shortly after quarantine started, my older daughter asked to uh, asked if I could uh, teach her how to play checkers. So uh, we made a checkerboard and a, a set of checkers, and we, we played together. And uh, you know, eventually she got bored, and um, she had heard there was a similar game that was a little harder called chess. So she asked about that, and I, I got us a chess set and, and um, refreshed my memory on the rules and we sort of learned and played together and we started to get pretty into it. Um, and then uh, I was both intrigued and uh, <clears throat> a little annoyed in October when the Queen's Gambit came out. Um, uh, intrigued because obviously it's about chess uh, and annoyed both because it turned out it was not something I could really show my seven-year-old daughter, I guess six at the time, uh, and also because, you know, at heart, I'm a, a vain and shallow millennial who wants nothing so much as to uh, get credit for uh, having been into something cool before anyone else was. Uh, but I, I, I watched the series, and I, I enjoyed it, <laughs> and I followed the, uh, the media response to it, which was largely glowing. Uh, the the uh, chess media found it um, I mean, was almost, uh, uh, without exception, um, adoring. Uh, the the one quibble which which um, I I again take a hipsterish pride in noting that I uh, remarked as well when I was watching it is that the the color commentary recorded about the chess matches in the series seems to have been written and or recorded separately because a lot of it doesn't actually line up with the matches being played. Uh, but that aside, uh, people who are into chess and have been into chess for a long time, much longer obviously than, than I 
than I have. Uh, serious chess people did really love it. And I think they loved it um, for the same reason that that I, I found I did, apart, of course, from uh, Anya Taylor-Joy's uh, just absolute um, charisma and stylishness. She is terrific, uh, and you should uh, see her in um, Thoroughbreds, as well as a weird little dark indie movie she's great in, a very different kind of role. Uh, there was a lot of criticism of the show. Uh, well, not a lot. There was a there was um, a non-negligible amount of criticism of the show for what I think are pretty... <laughs> uh real narrative and structural problems as well as you know what really sort of embarrassingly obvious clumsy handling of the the one major black character um there's actually a pretty good discussion of this in uh an episode of champagne sharks uh which i've recommended before uh but um I think what what I really liked about it, and again, what I think was so easy for chess people to like, apart from the fact that it just got a lot of people into the game, which you know, um, which is good for uh, for chess broadly. Uh, what I what I what I think I, I really enjoyed about it is that that um, you know it was promoted as a, a serious drama about substance abuse and genius. Uh, and there's certainly some genius in it, um, and there's no, <laughs> no doubt there is there's plenty of substance abuse. I, I personally find substance abuse narratives to be really boring, um, partly because they, there's not really there's not really very far they can go. They can either just spiral down into total horror and debasement and oblivion, or they can resolve in a recovery uh, but otherwise there's sort of there's sort of a limited narrative reduction is a very serious problem i just think it makes for boring tv uh, and there's also just a very obvious reason that there's so much addiction and recovery and uh especially you know uh, 12 step meetings in um television movies today just oh god they never end there were every series i watch i feel like there's a um at least at least one if not you know half a dozen obligatory scenes in a meeting uh and the, the very obvious and simple reason for this is that every single one of these tv shows every episode of every tv show every movie every screenplay every one of these things without exception in every case was written by a writer but what I liked about The Queen's Gambit, to get back to that, what I really liked about it is that it is essentially an action movie. And unlike uh, a lot of other chess movies, say Searching for Bobby Fischer or uh, Pawn Sacrifice, you, you get to really see the chess games. You know, it, it's uh, chess is often treated the way um, big uh, bank heists are in a lot of movies today where, where all of the the all of the actual violence is shot in such a choppy disconnected way that you can't quite track what's happening and in the queen's gambit at least for for much of it you got to sort of watch move by move a few decent games uh and when when i say it's an action movie i guess what i mean specifically is that it is the 2011 
mixed martial arts hit movie Warrior, starring Joel Edgerton and Tom Hardy. Uh, in The Queen's Gambit, as in Warrior, a, an unlikely outsider uh, with a, a native talent, uh, an abusive parent, and a family history of substance abuse comes from nowhere to compete in a prestigious but uh, niche event that is considered uh, by the outside world, you know, barely to be even a sport. Um, and uh, through a, a, a series of grueling trials demonstrates with a brutal and uh, unpicturesque but fundamentally uh, undeniable technique, uh, a, a, um, a dominance in uh, uh, competition after competition, gaining uh, renown as well as the, the adoration of the crowd until, you know, in a climactic victory, uh, she, uh, you know, uses this same proven method to uh, win out over uh, the, the the world favorite uh, to great acclaim. And uh, even more specifically, this technique I'm talking about, because uh, in both MMA, MMA and in chess, there are there is a favored method of victory. For uh, MMA, it's the, the flashy, swift knockout punch or knockout kick. Uh, for chess, it's the uh, elegant, often sacrifice-based uh, force checkmate combination. You see with Legal, you see with Lasker, you see with Morphe. Um, most of the really celebrated games uh, the opera game, the immortal game, um, Legal's Mate. These are uh, these sort of elegant, swift maneuvers that come out of nowhere um, and often seem to be uh, suicidal up until the moment in which they're victorious. Um, this is not uh, Beth, Har Beth Harmon's the, the protagonist of the Queen's Game, but this is not her method. Um, and this is not the method of the Joel Edgerton character either. In both cases, they proceed by uh, grueling, gradual attrition, uh, just wearing down the enemy until his position and his material are so demoralizing that he uh, gives up of his own will. Um, now, as I said, in chess, this is not um, this is not very glamorous, but it is extremely effective. Uh, this is, you know, victory by resignation in uh, mixed martial arts. It's called victory by submission. Um, and while again, the you know the the uh, flying kicks and knockout punches and forced uh, checkmate combinations are uh, the more telegenic, I guess. They're the more legendary victories. Uh, my my brother-in-law, um, not the the uh, ASMR bigot, but a different, better brother-in-law um, who recommended Warrior to me. He's in, he's into uh, jujitsu, and he, he he his argument is that uh, submission is really the nobler form of victory. Um, and 
you know, I, I think this holds somewhat in chess. Chess is a little bit of a trickier situation, but I think there's a, there is a, uh, an aesthetically pleasing, at least, there's an aesthetically pleasing argument to be made for this, which is that only in submission is there uh, a genuine agreement between the two fighters as to who is the better man, or in Beth Harmon's case, the better woman. There is, you know, there's not uh, a stroke of luck or a, you know, a bad, uh, you know, neurological lapse. There's, there is, it is brutal and it is not pretty, but there is a sort of a purity and there is an inarguable quality to victory by submission. Uh, I like that, I like that argument. Um, not that I do much winning uh, by uh, submission or resignation or anything else in chess and mostly just uh, continually lose to uh, chess bots designed for children. But uh, the most important thing and, and in conclusion, I just uh, I hope you remember that I was into chess a few months before it became cool. So on that note, let's start the fun show. There's um, a line at the end of Camus' book, The Myth of Sisyphus. Uh, it's the probably the most famous line in the book, uh, the, the last line of the, the main part of the title essay. Camus just described uh, the progress of Sisyphus up the mountain, pushing his giant rock, um, and then the rocks uh, inevitable tumble back down the mountain to the bottom from which point sisyphus will of course have to roll it back up again and um, when sisyphus reaches the bottom of the mountain uh, camus zooms in on him and makes an observation uh, you know concluding his uh, detailed comparison of the mythological figure's punishment to our daily condition uh, here in the real world. He says, um, this is in the, the Justin O'Brien translation, I'll read the last paragraph here to lead up to the famous line. I leave Sisyphus at the foot of the mountain. One always finds one burden again. But Sisyphus teaches the higher fidelity that negates the gods and raises rocks. He too concludes that all is well. This universe henceforth without a master seems to him neither sterile nor futile. Each atom of that stone, each mineral flake of that night-filled mountain in itself forms a world. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. Uh, in his short essay on this book, um, Maurice Blanchot writes, uh, he writes a lot about the, the argument, but maybe the, um, the most devastating summary he offers is simply, happy, that is quickly written. 
uh, reminds me of, uh, I was talking to my neighbor Kathleen about Camus the other day, and she uh, quoted The Simpsons, saying, Camus can do, but Sartre is smarter. Setting um, Sartre to one side, uh, I, I do think that Camus, whom I love, is, is probably a better artist than a thinker. Uh, and it's, it's really, it's the facing page. It's a few paragraphs earlier in the essay that I think gives me the most trouble before he even bothers to say that Sisyphus, uh, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. You know, he, he says that Sisyphus, Sisyphus concludes uh, also that all is well. And the, the also he's referring to is this earlier uh, quotation. He uh, is referring to uh, Oedipus. He, he, he cites Gethsemane, so, you know, uh, Christ and um, Extremis uh, affirms that things are as they should be, that, that you know, this is what, what is supposed to happen. We call the uh, day of the crucifixion Good Friday in the Christian tradition because that's the, the logic of Christianity. But, um, but Camus uh, looks at Oedipus as well. Um, he says, uh, uh, a tremendous remark rings out from Oedipus after he's blind, after he's already learned the full horror of his, uh, his life, his origin and his uh, fate to kill his father and marry his mother. A tremendous remark rings out. Despite so many ordeals, my advanced age and the nobility of my soul make me conclude that all is well. Sophocles' Oedipus, like Dostoevsky's Kirillov, thus gives the recipe for the absurd victory. Ancient wisdom confirms modern heroism. So this is, this is he, he quotes Oedipus saying, Despite so many ordeals, my advanced age and the nobility of my soul make me conclude that all is well. I, I have uh, I've spent a lot of time looking for that line. Now, if you go online and you, you type in Oedipus and all is well, you'll find a whole lot of citations of this, this um, quote. And in, in every case, uh, the, the phrasing of this quotation that's offered will be uh, Camus. Because um, despite having you know, read uh, Oedipus the King and Oedipus at Colonus, um, a, a number of times having taught them even, and then gone back specifically and skimmed the text line by line, uh, you know, more than a couple times searching for this line. Uh, I've not been able to find it. And, and, and I have finally tracked down what I think it is, where it comes from. And there's a, you'll notice there's a really key difference between what uh, Camus quotes and what uh, Oedipus actually says. So here is um, here is the uh, the Gilbert Murray translation. Long sufferingness I have learnt by much pain and the company of the slow years and mine own royalty. So we see there are a lot of the same elements, right? The ordeals, the advanced age, the nobility. Um, but it's not. He doesn't conclude that all is well. He has learned long-sufferingness. Um, in the Richard Jebb 
Translation, for patience is the lesson of suffering and of the long years upon me, and lastly, of a noble mind. So patience here. Um, and Francis Storr's translation, for I am taught by suffering to endure and the long years that have grown old with me, and last not least by true nobility. So it's the suffering, by suffering he has learned to endure. Um, and in E.F. Watling's translation, um, he, uh, it's little I ask and I am well content with less. Three masters, pain, time, and the royalty in the blood have taught me patience. So uh, in, in all of these cases, and I'm not, a, again, I'm not a classicist, so maybe some of my Greek literate friends can uh, help me out, but I, I, I don't think Oedipus says all is well. Uh, this is at the beginning of Oedipus at Colonus, um, at the end of his life, the end of um, uh, Sophocles' life. He, he says that all of these things have taught him patience. They've taught him to endure. They've taught him long-sufferingness. And this is quite different from the conclusion that all is well. Now, I don't think uh, Camus was just using creative license exactly. I, I think that he he probably believed he was quoting Oedipus. Um, but, you know, if you look at it in his notebooks, he quotes uh, Marcus Aurelius a few times. Wherever it, is, wherever it is possible to live, it is possible to live well. Now, um, Marcus Aurelius died, unlike Oedipus, uh, with his eyes, without having killed his father or married his mother, uh, and while still emperor, he died, um, uh, you know, an accomplished man in, in, in many respects, but uh, not one who had quite gone through what Oedipus had gone through. Now, if you want the uh, to hear a you know you know a man of uh, advanced age and nobility of soul conclude that all is well, read the Meditations, and that's basically the refrain of the book. That uh, despite so many ordeals, all is well. That's that's something he he says in, uh, you know, in the, not quite in so many words, uh, over and over and over again. Um, and and I suspect that Camus' admiration for Marcus Aurelius caused him to transpose these uh, lines or to or to you know combine them in a certain way. Now it. it it goes further because there's a, a moment in um, Book 11 of the Meditations when uh, Marcus Aurelius actually turns to Oedipus's life. He's talking about tragedies and what one can learn from tragedies, but then uh, he, he quotes one and the quote reveals that he's actually specifically talking about Oedipus. He says, um, and this is in George Long's translation of the Meditations, he says, for you see that the play must end in such a way, and that even in such cries as, O Kitharon, there is strength to bear. And the dramatists give us words of help such as the following, uh, me and my children, if the gods neglect, this has its reasons too. Um, uh, and this is, um, this last quotation is not from, Oedipus, but the Okitheron uh, is something Oedipus cries out when he learns who he is. He learns that that is that he's uh, the son of Laos and Yocasta, and that he was left on Mount Kitheron 
and was supposed to be exposed there to the elements to die, but was rescued. And he is crying out to the mountain, Mount Kithron, uh, asking why it did not allow him to die there. He should have died there. So uh, though Marcus Aurelius is able to reframe Oedipus' story uh, in terms of his philosophy, that all is finally well, no matter what, that, that's not at all Oedipus' conclusion. And, um, and and I think I'm really, my sympathies here are are with Oedipus as much as I admire uh, Camus. I think, you know, the myth of Sisyphus, if I'm not mistaken, um, was written relatively early in his life. I think he was something like 27 when he wrote this. Um, if you read his last novel, The Fall, I think that the, the image there of uh, these questions is a little more complex. But, um, but the specific... Uh, uh, text this sent me to uh, tonight as a um, much more recent poem uh, or much more recent piece of writing as a poem by Bill Coyle this appeared in um, Poetry Magazine in uh, March of 2006 and this is called uh, Colmarden Zoo uh, and this I think makes uh, the distinction quite um, artfully so I'll, I'll read this. I may say a word or so about it, but then we will move on. This is Colmarden Zoo by Bill Coyle. Over our heads, trailing a wake of air and an, and an enormous shadow as it passed, the falcon glided to its trainer's fist and settled like a loaded weapon there. Then... While she fed the bird bit after bit of, what, rabbit? The trainer gave her talk. These birds, she said, prey on the small and weak, adding, for the children's benefit, that this, though it seems cruel, is really good, since otherwise the other rabbits, mice, squirrels, what have you, would run out of space and die of illness or a lack of food. I know what she was trying to get across. And I don't doubt it would be healthier if we were more familiar than we are with how the natural world draws life from loss. And granted, nothing is more natural than death incarnate falling from the sky. And granted, it is better some should die, however agonizingly than all. Still, to teach children this is how things go is one thing. To insist that it is good is something else. It is to make a god of an unsatisfactory status quo. This vicious circle that the clock hands draw and quarter while the serpent bites its tail or eats the dust or strikes at someone's heel or winds up comprehended by a claw. She launched the bird again. We watched it climb out of the amphitheater, headed toward the darkened spires of a nearby wood, then bank, then angle toward us one last time. Um, it's a, you know, it's a sort of a rhetorical poem. It has an, an argument in it that's, um, I think, maybe most efficiently articulated in the third to last stanza, the antepenultimate stanza. Still, to teach children this is how things go is one thing. To insist that it is good is something else. The uh, the trainer uh, at this zoo um, 
you know, argues that, uh, well, you know, the, 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 the hawk kills weak and uh, vulnerable and young animals. And, you know, and, and that's and that's a good thing. You know, the, the gods sometimes uh, curse a man so that he murders his father and sleeps with his mother. And uh, not only is that the will of the gods and the way of the world, but it's a, it's a good thing. Uh, and I, and uh, the you know the poet or the speaker of the poem, I, I suspect it's it's pretty close to Bill Coyle's um, own perspective, resists this claim. Uh, I I do think that this is um, I mean it, it's a it is a a skillful poem throughout. It's just very uh, crisply and um, tidily put, uh, but it also has I think some few sort of moments of uh, rhetorical and artistic flair to it. It's, um, I think, a nice uh, revision of the famous Yeats line, the falcon cannot hear the falconer um, from the second coming, that in this case, the falcon does hear the falconer and returns uh, very neatly, snugly to the trainer's fist. Um, that this is not uh, the world falling apart. This is actually the world exactly as, as it is supposed to work. And that it's that clockwork uh, regularity, that appropriateness that is itself the uh, the source of menace here. Um, and I also, I, I you know, I rather like that he um, he he responds to her argument by saying, "I know what she was trying to get across, letting us know right away that he's going to object to it, that he's going to present an argument." Um, and then he he sets us up. To hear his argument, um, I know what she was trying to get across, and I don't doubt it would be healthier if we were more familiar than we are with how the natural world draws life from loss. And you know, he's he's given a quatrain there to qualifying his uh, retort, and and we're we're really ready for the but that's about to follow. But rather than letting himself do that, he he holds off again, and and we hear. Oh, and granted, nothing is more natural than death incarnate falling from the sky, which is sort of theatrical, but also you know pretty hard to argue with. And granted, it is better some should die, however agonizingly, than all. So he, he gives us uh, a, a quatrain of qualification, a to-be-sure quatrain, but then he finds that he has to continue going so that we get another couple of qualifications, a whole other quatrain, uh, in which he finds his objection shrinking to this sort of small corner, this small principled corner, um, which is that, uh, yeah, all right, you're, you're, for, yes, you're right. This is exactly um, the way things are. And maybe it's the way things must be. Maybe in some sense it's the way things should be. But it's still a different thing to say that it is good. It's just a different claim to make. Now, I do think that that almost in um, parallel fashion, if the poem has a weakness, it's it's in that penultimate stanza. Um, he's he's stated his case so cleanly uh, and so um, poignantly. Still, to teach children this is how things go is one thing. To insist that it is good is something else. It is to make a god of an unsatisfactory status quo, and then he 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 uh, performs a he he spins a couple donuts in the yard. Then you know he adds a few seraphs and curlicues to the calligraphy. This vicious circle that the clock hands draw 
and quarter, while the serpent bites its tail or eats the dust or strikes at someone's heel or winds up comprehended by a claw. And this is all very well done. We get uh, the, um, the vicious circle along with the clock that becomes the uh, evocation of the drawing and quartering the you know ancient medieval you know torture and punishment to the Ouroboros to the um, the the serpent in the Garden of Eden who's who's cursed to eat the dust and strike it the sons of Adam's heels and then uh, that that I think very nicely drawn uh, last image wind up comprehended winds up comprehended by a claw so that the literal meaning of comprehended be you know held with um, held with or held within is uh, is also used to uh, suggest that that the the brutal claw that snatches the snake up from the ground uh, to be you know dragged to the nest and eaten that claw in fact doesn't just contain the snake but in some sense understands it comprehends it and all of that is very neat uh, I think however that's a moment where you know in an otherwise extremely understated poem, we might just get a little more of the poet's, it might be, you know, we, we, we just get a little more of a sense that we're in the hands of a, of a skillful and talented poet who, who just wants to make sure we don't forget, we don't miss the fact that we are in such skillful and talented hands. I can't really um, blame Coyle for this, but I do think that it's, it's a moment where we, we begin to care a little more about the poet than about the poem. Um, but then the, the last stanza, I think, uh, really clinches it. She launched the bird again, back to that very plain-spoken mode. We watched it climb out of the, th the amphitheater, headed toward the darkened spires of a nearby wood, then bank, then angle toward us one last time. Just that last little echo, that suggestion, that reminder that, you know, once upon a time, uh, and in some sense, always we are we are also on the menu uh, so yeah i i um i i buy camus claim that we are sisyphus i resist his claim that we must imagine sisyphus happy there goes my air conditioning and uh, i think that is a good place to say let's start the fucking show